From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of Goal Own Goal. Joining me as always, the human own goal himself. I keep saying that, but he keeps proving me right. Roger Mitchell. Hi mate, yeah. how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've joined my part of the world. How are you getting on? I have. I'm in a different part of Italy, just as glorious as your own part of Italy, I have to say. The weather is magnificent. I've got good friends here keeping me company and um, life is good, Roger. I have to say, la dolce vita... I yeah, yeah, it kind really of gets get to you. The only, the only problem is, <laughs> is is the La Vita Interneta. That's a bit more of a problem. Yeah, well, you've got, you've got to kind of like surf that. When it when it's there, you have to take advantage. When it's not, you have to like have a mojito. Yeah, no, exactly right. So I, I if, if I disappear at any point in this podcast and, and wander back in, it's not because I'm completely chip-faced it's because the internet's gone down and i'm trying to get it back up but we have uh, listen we have a we have a, a, a special guest joining us in a little while a dear dear friend of mine who is a super smart guy and a very very big sports fan but we'll come on to that in a minute but before we do rog it behooves us i suspect to have uh, a little goal and a little own goal what do you reckon why don't you go first yeah well um i think the main own goal has to be that nobody this side of the pond I suspect, managed to see all of the US Open because of their crazy scheduling. Um, I I just don't get it, Grant. I mean, like, they're competing for people's time, for people's leisure activity. So let's just make it kick off in Italy at midnight, the the last pairing. I mean, what are they thinking? Well, no, it's very simple. All all they care about is East Coast primetime TV, Roger. That's what this is all about, right? Every time the, the US Open is on the West Coast, it finishes in prime time on, on the East Coast, which is between eight and nine. So that's what they mm. do, right? They, they set it to finish prime time on the East Coast, which is, as you say, utterly ridiculous. I mean, it, re- it really is ridiculous that they do that, but they do. Um, did, did you stay up and watch it? No, no. What I did was I recorded it on my DVR and then got up in the morning, turned all my phones off, turned everything off, so I wouldn't get any ah, get bombarded by my mates. Um, and so I watched it and it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, God, Christ, I feel for Rory. And I want to talk to you about that because, um, you know, we, we, we've t- spoken about this. Mm. Sometimes the guy who plays the best golf doesn't win because he sh- doesn't shoot the lowest score, right? And I thought Rory was magnificent this week. He was, he just played great guy. He could not, he couldn't buy a putt. It was St. Andrews last year all over again. He was mm-hmm. magnificent at St. Andrews and Cam Smith hold everything he looked at. Yeah. And, Nine nine years out of ten, shooting level par in the last round of a U.S. Open. When you're in or around the lead with you know a guy who is untested in that sort of heat, will win you the U.S. Open. And he just couldn't buy a par. I, I feel so bad for him. And this, I tell you, this was the first time Rog in his post round, you know, kind of mini talk to the interviewer thing. You could see this one really, really hurt him. Really, I didn't see that. Yeah, he was really down. He was like, you know, I'm going to keep coming back. I'm going to keep putting myself in this position. And the more position times I can get in this position, you know, I'm going to, I'll keep coming back. I'll do this a hundred times if I have to win one. But you could tell that this one coming on top of St. Andrews last year and the PGA, but this one, you could see it, it hurt him. I, I, I thought he played magnificently. But look, hats off to Wyndham Clark. What a phenomenal effort. I mean, he was, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, when he wobbled on 15 and 16, I thought, here we go. Or 14 yeah. and 15, rather. I thought, here we go. But he was rock solid, so hats off to him. What a, what a, what a, it, was, you know, it was great. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I've played LA Country Club oh. um, many years ago. played both courses in the same day. I was absolutely shattered at the end of it. But it's a fantastic golf course. Um, I, I'm not sure it's a US Open golf course, if I'm honest no. with you. Uh, no. I think what they had to do to the fairways to make it playable, you know, because of all those banks and cameras on the fairways they had yeah. to have some wide fairways it, it wasn't u.s open golf to me you know you don't you don't 
win the US Open by being 10, 11 under. I mean, it happens every now and again, but I, I don't know. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What about you? Did, or did you watch it or have you seen it? I didn't. I saw the every day. I saw the highlights. That was all. And they had a good app that allowed you to see the, the highlights of every player. They're good at that now. So that's how I consumed the US Open on the wrap after the event, uh, doing the, the roundup. Listen, I think Rory has been playing well for a while now. Of what I saw of him, he was as solid as a rock. You know, he's, he's driving the ball a mile, but he's totally under control. There's very little to find fault with. And, you know, I saw a stat today that, you know, was saying about majors and the stat is that Tiger Woods lost 84% of the majors he played in. You know, winning a major isn't common. And that's why I, I was saying that I feel a little bit of a cheat to be still holding on to this. He'll never win another open prediction because he really deserves one. I thought his head was gone a couple of years ago. Was it three years ago? Can't remember when you know he, he was like he was like trashing it in the first round and putting himself in a position that he couldn't even make the cut at Port Rush and things like that. Now that's not this guy. You know what? You know the really cool call now would be that see when he wins one, he wins four in a row. He wins two or three, yeah. 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 He's, he's, you heard he's it first here. Here we go. Oh, yes. <laughs> if you want to flip, you can flip, my friend. That's, that's not a problem. Well, no, no, I'm, I've already I'm cashed delighted. out the other one. I cashed out the other one, uh, so Had I took a little bit of profit. Um, but, you know, the glory call now is the Rory Grand Slam. That's the glory call. <laughs> well, I've got, so I've got to say, my... Um, my uh, own goal is something that I suspect we're going to get into with our guest in a minute, so I'm not going to bring that up right now. This is to do with the PIF and Chelsea and Clear Lake yeah. and, uh, you know, the stuff that's going on in football is just truly extraordinary. You know, my goal was going to be the, the US Open, not not the timing of it all, and I think I think we've talked about that. But so let, let's, 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 let's talk a little bit about our guest who's joining us in a second because, you know, we've been dancing around this uh, this nexus between geopolitics and sport for quite some time now. And, um, you know, over the last year, 18 months, it's come more and more into focus for a lot of people, I think. And it's it just seems to be picking up so much speed now that it's actually quite frightening how quickly this is all happening. Uh, you know, it's something that you've been right about from day one, this idea that this is just going to become an arms race and, you know, the Disney slash art house thing. You've been absolutely right and kudos to you for doing that. But now we are really firmly moving into the geopolitical part of this. It's not mm -hmm. all about business and money and private equity now. This is sport is becoming not a rich man's plaything, but an embattled country's plaything. Um, yeah. And so our, yeah. our guest who's joining us in a second is Brent Johnson, who runs a business called Santiago Capital. He's a big sports fan. He and I have been friends for, God, more than years I can remember, over a decade now. And, you know, although we're both in the financial business, we bonded over basketball and we bonded over golf you know it's it's one of those things right sport is something that that bonds people inside and outside of the things that bring them together and I'm absolutely delighted to have him join us because uh if you want to talk geopolitics and you want to talk these kinds of things Brent is one of the very best and so um I'm delighted to have him come on and, yeah. and offer his two cents on the world around us and as you'll see he's uh, as big a sports nut as as either of us so let's welcome Brent to the show perfect Brent matey good to have you with us thank you for joining us Nice to be here. I was thinking of you yesterday watching the uh, the, the 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 U.S. Open, thinking I, I got to come up there to South Carolina and play some golf with you. Mate, you absolutely do. I'm telling you, <laughs> and you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come, uh, as long as you give me three shots aside, you are welcome in my house. Everybody is. <laughs> I haven't I haven't played in two years. I haven't played in two years, so it's a uh, that's bandit it's, talk. It's long overdue. Bandit talk, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see you, Brent. Thank you for coming on. Lovely to see you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. This is going to be fun. You and I, I was saying in the in the top of the show, you and I, even though we're in the same business, we bonded over sport. You know, we're both big golfers and we're both big basketball fans. So just give people a little taste of your immersion in sport because it's something you've been all over from a very, very young age. And, and I have to say, done a lot better than me at a much higher level. <laughs> Well, I just I grew up in a in a in an environment where sports was kind of a religion a little bit. I grew up in a little town in Nebraska, and in Nebraska, football is part of the culture. Um, now, I didn't have the uh, physical makeup to be a football player, but it's always college football has always been my favorite sport since the time I was a little kid. 
um, I was a basketball player and I always, and I was pretty good. And so, you know, that, that kind of became a defining, um, characteristic of my life. Uh, my father was a very good athlete in high school, a uh, very good, you know, high school athlete, um, didn't pursue it, you know, in college or anything, but he just loved sports. Uh, you know, I sent a, I put something out on Twitter yesterday about my dad, just because he was the most crazy sports guy I knew, but that didn't even have to know about the sport. He would, he would watch soccer if it was a world cup game, but he didn't know anything about it. He'd watch tennis when he didn't even know what the, how did the scoring system worked? You know, if uh, we, we would watch, uh, we would everywhere we went in the summer, he would have a radio on for the Kansas city Royals baseball to see how it was. So I just, it was just uh, omnipresent in everything I did as a kid. And I think that's just kind of translated through, you know, my whole life. It's just, it's just part of who I am. But you, you know, when you said that you were a pretty good basketball player, you were being a little bit humble. You know, you played for one of the great schools in the United States, in Kansas. So, so talk a little bit about that because, you know, you and I have spoken about this before and it's such a great story. And for, and for people that were in the U.S. college system, they'll understand, but there are a lot of people listening to this that won't understand it. So I'd love you to give them a sense of that because it's, it's such a big thing. Sure, sure. So I grew up in the 80s and in the 80s, ESPN had just kind of, you know, come into the fore and they used to have this thing called Big Monday. And I don't know if you ever heard about this, but it was a it was Monday night basketball. And it, they would show an East Coast game and then they would show a Midwest game and then they'd show a Mountain West game and then they would show a Pacific Coast game. So I would watch from the time I got home after school from four o'clock until like 11 o'clock. I would watch basketball. And uh, so I grew up, you know, just loving college basketball. And for, I, I don't really know why, but I always liked Kansas. Uh, my, my mom's whole side of the family was from Kansas, but they were all K-State fans. But I guess through that, through the K-State rivalry with Kansas, I, I became familiar with Kansas. And for whatever reason, I just liked Kansas better. And so I always followed and can't, they were, they were a little bit better at the time. Um, they had made the final four when I was, you know, like 12 years old and, and then they had Danny Manning and they had that big run and, you know, the Danny and the miracles. And so I just always loved Kansas. And so I was, so in high school, I was a very good player. Um, I had made all state as a junior. And so then as a senior, you know, I was trying to figure out where I was going to go to college and, I was always one of these kids who kind of dreamed very big and maybe a little bit bigger than my ability. <laughs> but I always thought, well, I want to play at Kansas or I want to play. My, my whole goal was to make the, the final four. I mean, I just wanted to play in the final four so badly. And so, you know, if you're going to play in the final four, you have to play for a team that has the capability to make the final four. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had met the coach of Nebraska at a Nebraska basketball camp when I was like a freshman or a sophomore. And he made some all, and I, I I had played pretty well, and I was a three point shooter, and I, and not that this matters, but we were at a camp for big men, like to learn post moves. But I was shooting three pointers, and they were like, "Why is this big guy shooting three pointers?" But anyway, I had a good game, and so Danny Knee, who was the coach of Nebraska, came over and said, "When I call you in a few years, are you going to come play for me?" I said, "If you call me, I'll come play for you." Well, he never called me. <laughs> so, you know, here I am as a senior, th I keep waiting for the call. I keep waiting for the call and it just never comes. And so I, I, I get a number of scholarship offers for some smaller schools, but I don't get the, you know, I don't get the scholarship offer for a big school, but I wanted to play for a big school. So I decided to walk on at Kansas. And fortunately, Kansas had a junior varsity team, which made it a little bit easier to make the team there. And so you still had to go through the tryout process, which was kind of brutal, but, uh, you know, I loved everything about Kansas. You know, was, I remember the first day I walked in, my my JV coach, who who had played, you know, in the Final Four for Kansas a few years earlier, said, "This is the first time you're ever going to have to play hard." And I thought, "What what are you talking about? I've been playing hard my whole life. I'm pretty good. I know what I'm doing." You know, you know the typical you know young bravado thinking this guy doesn't know anything about me. And I step on the court and I quickly learned that I was going to have to play a lot harder than I had ever played before. And I think Grant, I've told you this story before my very first game in Kansas, I was guarding a guy named Kevin Pritchard who had won the national championship two years before and was at the time playing for the, for the golden state warriors. And somehow I had to guard him. And of course he just destroyed me. Uh, but there were, there was a moment 
I still remember it when I'm, I'm so tired, I'm getting absolutely killed and I'm, he's bringing the ball down the court and I'm backpedaling, guarding him. And it's one of the, it's hot, it's a hot day in August. And it's like the sun is coming. You've never been to Allen Fieldhouse, like the sun comes through in a certain way. And so the sun is coming through and it's like lighting up the dust particles in the, in the air. And there's this big sign and the famous sign that says, pay, pay heed all who enter, beware of the fog and the national championship banner. So I'm backing up, guarding him. And it, that's all like, and it was like a movie. I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> I, I couldn't breathe because I was so tired. Yeah. But, uh, you know, out of the top five moments of my life, that, that still remains one of them. That's fantastic, Brent. That's fantastic. Listen, keeping on basketball a little bit, you know, the whole sport, uh, certainly college basketball has gone through quite a lot of change in the last couple of years. You know, we've seen some of the conferences trying to take teams away from each other, you know, there's a lot of talk about the, the rights for the NBA coming up and, you know, what is the value of the regular season? How do you, how would you assess the health of the sport of basketball, NBA and college? Well, I, it's really interesting because I would say it's pretty strong, but you, you've gone into this era of like these super teams, right? And it changes so often that it's almost like if you're going to win the NBA championship, you're going to have to spend up for it. You're going to have to do these massive trades and you're going to have to try to win in the next two years because you're going to, you're going to bring all these guys together just for two or three years, and then it's going to be over. Um, so I still think it's very popular, but I, it, I, it feels differently to me than it did when I was growing up. There, there's definitely been a change. In the college sports, it's an even bigger change, I think, because it's almost like a semi-pro league now. And in some ways, I think that's good, but the traditionalist in me, obviously, you know, was a little bit sad to see a change, but I, I kind of felt it was inevitable. But now it's not just basketball, but, it, you know, it's you used to have all these different conferences and the conferences were primarily driven by geography. Yeah. But then, you know, it started to become about money. You know, it's it's like the pros. And so now you start they start building these super conferences where instead of, you know, eight teams in a conference, there's 24 teams in a conference. and somehow, you know, a, a school in Colorado ends up in the Big East or, or something like that. You know, I, I again, I grew up in Nebraska and Creighton uh, has always had a good basketball team in, in Nebraska. To think that Creighton is in the Big East, it's just so weird to me that. Um, and it's almost like we're. I was joking the other day with somebody. I said, you know, they're going to keep making these conferences bigger and bigger until there's one conference and they call it the NCAA. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah, for, it's, sure. It's, for sure. For <laughs> sure. And, you know, part of the thing that that I have always focused on is that the money that went to the head coaches and the school mm -hmm. presidents, they fought against this NIL and paying students forever because of the college experience and the, the, the glory of amateur athletics. Meanwhile, they're putting, again, Creighton's joining the Big East for money, right? And so... I'm happy in a way that the that they have this NIL deal now where, you know, athletes who are generating millions and millions and millions of dollars for the school actually get some for themselves. And part of the reason I'm happy is because I don't and I don't think a lot of people realize this. The opponents of, you know, paying players or the NIL is that when, when previously when you were a college athlete, you were not allowed to have a job. Because the rich schools would give the players a very good job, you know, and the poor schools wouldn't be able to give the players a job. And that was a very easy way to pay people under the table. So they just said, you can't have a job. Well, the problem with that is a lot of these, the, these kids that were on the teams. And, and first of all, like being a college athlete is a full-time job in and of itself. You are spending more than 40 hours a week, forget school. You're spending more than 40 hours a week, practicing, watching tape, traveling. Then you got to do your schoolwork. These, a lot of these kids didn't have any money. And not only did they not have any money, they, they couldn't go buy clothes. So the, the reason you'd always see athletes wearing their gear, their basketball gear, was because that was the clothes they had. <laughs> they, they didn't have money to go buy, you know, boots or jeans or, or coats. So they would just wear their athletic gear all the time. Um, you know, the, the parents would would oftentimes be from poor families, inner city families, and they, they, they would try to come to a game. They couldn't afford to stay in a hotel. So they'd, they'd sleep on the players' dorm room floors or whatever it was. And so I don't know whether the solution they've come up with is the right one or not, but I'm glad it's kind of moved that way a little bit because, you know, 
to see, you know, I don't know, Nick Saban making $10 million a year or whatever it is, and a player not making anything and not being able to even get a job because it goes against NCAA sanctions or NCAA rules, that never sat well with me. So it'll be interesting to see how this all kind of plays out. Well, let, let me ask you exactly on that. If Overtime Elite League had been around in your time, would you have given a thought to just jump the NCAA and go into overtime? I mean, potentially, if it, if it had been, my, you know, my son talks about stuff like that all the time. Um, you know, he, he's on he's on a volleyball team in here in Puerto Rico, and they, they have similar stuff for that for for, for volleyball. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I probably would have. Again, I don't know that I was good enough to have done it, but these are professions; these are jobs. In any other profession, a kid in college gets offered three million bucks to go be a carpenter. He immediately drops out of school and goes and be a carpenter. Right. Right. But when it's when it's characterized as an athlete, well, he's you know, he's just leaving school for the money. It's the wrong thing to do. And it's like it's so hypocritical. It drives me crazy <laughs> when most people, if, regardless of their their, you know, historical financial situation would take that money to tell a kid from the inner city or a poor family that, that they should not do it is it, to me, it's crazy. Brent, where, where do you think this heads from here because Roger and I have talked a lot about this this shift from being a supporter of a team uh, and we, we've talked about this primarily in soccer but the same thing is now happening in basketball to your earlier point and you switch from being a fan of a team to a fan of a player and when that player moves you change your loyalties right and you know obviously the, the guy that springs to mind for me is well there's two is LeBron with his moves to you know Cleveland to Miami to Cleveland to LA and KD you know, Kevin Durant has moved to four, and Kevin Durant seems to be like the mercenary for hire. He kind of goes to a different team each season. <laughs> right, they build a right. big three around him. And to your point, in, in an attempt to win a championship, but that to me, it feels like it's it's weakening this proposition. As is the move to put Creighton in the Big East. You lose local rivalries. You lose all the beautiful things about team sports that make them so special. And you think back to the prime years that you and I watched the NBA were, were the same in the 80s with you know, first the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers. You know, a lot of those guys were career Lakers. You know, Kareem came in from Milwaukee, but Magic was there and you saw Worthy and you saw uh, AC Green and all these guys come through that for years. Same with the Jordan Bulls, you know, the first three-peat team. Again, there were a lot more career players. So where do you think this goes from here? Do we keep moving towards the individual stars and forget the teams? Does it have to pivot back at some point because people will just fall out of love with the teams? And I, I just, I can't, I can't reconcile in my head where this is all going. Well, in general, I think it's going to continue in the way that it's going. And the reason is because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, money talks, right? And Stop I, smiling, Mitchell. I'll, well, I'll qualify this by saying, and it's funny because I talk about this a lot in my business too. And I talk about this when I talk about you know, finance and capital markets is there's a difference between what I would like to see happen and what I think is actually going to happen. I probably fall on your side, Grant, on what I would love to see happen. You know, I'm 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 kind of a very nostalgic, emotional type guy. You know, I love the history and I love the tradition. And, you know, I, I love all of that stuff. But then I sit back and I just analyze it rationally and remove my emotion from it. And it's like, this is this is not going to stop. The, the floodgates are open and that's where it's going. And, and part of it, part of it is because it has started this way. And now I'll just use my son as an example, right? He is, see, you know, he doesn't, he has never seen what you and I saw because that, that's not the product. That's not the product that's delivered to him. Right. And so the idea the idea that my son and his generation are going to demand a change back to what you and I had, I think is probably wrong. As much as I might like to see it, that's probably not going to happen. And part of it is like, um, <laughs> it's, funny. it's funny, the, the earlier this year, whatever the Grammys were, right? They, they were having the Grammys. And like, I literally did not know any of the singers <laughs> and I didn't know any of the music. And of course, my son knew who they were. And, it's, you know, it's, it's this rap music and this, you know, all these videos. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s and MTV. And I kind of kind of I like to think I'm kind of a hip guy and kind of with the times. But I, di I didn't know any of the songs. I didn't know any of the artists. And I almost I, I almost said, gosh, I wish they made music the way they used to. And as, <laughs> as I was formulating those words, I, I heard my dad. I heard my dad's voice saying the same thing. 
And I remember him saying that one out in the eighties. And I was like, you're so just stop, you know, this get with it. And so I think there's probably that too. You know, I'm getting older and I'm nostalgic for the eighties and how it used to be, but the reality is it's probably not going that way. Rog, do you just want to just bathe in that for a moment? Because this is basically, I see the, the well, listeners can't see the smug smile well, on I mean, your you face. You keep saying that in every show, but, you know, the reality is that Brent and I are, and you, Grant, we're all the same. You know, the difference between you and I, Grant, on four years of this is that you resist this. It's not that you and I hope for different things. You resist it. No, I know. Whereas... No. I'm like Brent, you know, like you can't buck the markets. I'm sure somebody said that once. You can't buck the market. You know, the thing that, that I want to ask now to Brent is this. Is there a way that we can find some kind of like compromise here? Or do we just have to let market forces have their way and, you know, it all ends up with something that doesn't even resemble what we recognise as sport. There's no loyalty. There's no dignity. It's, you know, what did you do for me lately? What can you pay me tomorrow? You know, the whole PGA thing, which you and I started chatting about, Brent, you know, that's a sport of golf that has thrown all its values into the gutter and, like, that's not good. You know, we must be able to do better than that, Brent. How can we do? Because most of us think the same. We're all capitalists. We're all capital markets, guys. But we don't want the market to win. Well, so the analogy I would use here is, I mean, all, again, all three of us are capitalists, right? So capitalism says, let the market determine what is best. It's not for us to decide what the price should be. Let the millions of you know market participants decide. So I think the only way to put it back the way perhaps we would like it would be to impose some restrictions or laws or rules or whatever it is, right? But then we're the central bankers, right? We're the central bankers fighting against the market, trying to make it the way we think it should be. <laughs> but I'm That's not. Good. But I don't believe in that, right? I don't. I, I that would that doing that would make me a hypocrite, you know, because I don't believe in that. Uh, I would be the Jay Powell or the, or the Janet Yellen or the Ben Bernanke saying, this is for the best. We 12 know better than you millions, right? And so I think in the same way that it probably went too far the other way, now it's going to go too far this way. And whether that happens in two years or 20 years, I don't know. But I don't think there's a way to put the genie back in the bottle. Brent, so bringing this back to our day job, um, and this is something that, you know, Roger and I have talked about for a while now. The big variable here and the big tailwind, I suspect, to things going, if not back the way they were and the way, the way we'd like them, but back in that direction, is the cost of capital, right? Because everything we've seen happen in sport has happened very, very quickly during this period that you and I have spent more as a Michaela think about debating with each other, and that's this, this idea of zero cost of capital. And so, you know, both from a, an ability to, to fund some of these deals, and, and obviously this is why we end up with these nation states now, because the money's relevant, and we'll come on to those in a while, but for the hedge funds, the private equity companies that want to make these acquisitions, it suddenly becomes very different, as it does for the fans who can't afford to go to the games anymore. So, so what do you think yeah. the effect is on sport of the situation we're in now with, with the cost of capital? Well, well like I said, I, I think that it's going to get worse. I, I, I should probably shouldn't use worse and better because it's not for me to say what it's worth. But I think this trend is going to continue. I think the, the, the more money is going to be spent, I think this is going to happen. But, you know, in the same way that I think there will be a reckoning day in capital markets, that reckoning day will now occur in the world of sport because capital markets are intertwined with the world of sport now. But I would say that that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be this year or next year. You know, I was actually listening to the the interview that Roger did with Berlusconi back, was that 20 years ago? And More than that, even sadly, in that, 30, 30. Okay, 30. 30, okay. So, well, well, so in that interview, he he said, you know, we spend a lot of money to make not very much. So even back then, the profit margins were very small. And he, he, maybe he was one of the original guys to do this, right? To just get talent at all costs and just eke out a small profit. But, you know, and for, so the fact that that trend started 30 years ago and now we are where we are, it's, 
you know, the idea that I can time this perfectly and say next year, as a result of this latest deal, this is all going to come crashing down. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not smart enough to make that prediction, but I just feel like it's very cliche, but this whole fourth turning plays into everything, right? You it know, does. you've I've talked about the fourth does. turning before. And and at least again, for at least for where I grew up, and I assume this is the same way everywhere, like sports is part of the culture, right? And so as the institutions start to fall, it's not just the political institutions that fall or the financial institutions that fall, it's it's the sports institutions that fall as well, because it's all kind of it's it's kind of like the what's the right way to say the the singularity like everything's kind of blending into one now right every you know who would have thought that golf would be a geopolitical issue right right they used to try to kind of make it one with like the Ryder Cup and oh it's the U.S. versus but it was all kind of manufactured it wasn't real drama right but now it's actually real drama there's actually real geopolitical significance to it you know, what isn't it? The war on the shore. It wasn't yeah. that what they called the, the Ryder yeah. Cup in, in South, in uh, South Carolina. Um, yeah. So, I mean, now it, it, it actually is much more, I don't know if importance the right word, but it's, it's definitely more um, involved and intertwined than it ever has been before. On that point, it's almost like a collection of weather fronts and they're all coming together. You know, the whole, you know, you can't buck the market capital flows. The reality is that I think for wrong, but maybe they think for right, there is a lot of big finance money that thinks sport as an asset class uh, is going to do them a turn. I tend to think they're wrong. You know, when we're speaking here today, I think Michael Jordan's just sold, what, the Hornets, is it? You know, for $3 billion. Yeah. Uh, those asset values have gone up, like loads of asset values, like real estate, like the fangs, they've, they've gone up enormously on the cost of low cost of capital. So, so that in itself was really putting pressure onto sports, let's say, socialist way of doing things because sport works, Brent, when you've got uncertainty of result and the teams are more or less equal. When you start getting big yeah. money polarizing because capitalism always leads towards monopoly, that's the way it is. That was in itself was hard enough. When you throw in the Saudis that have got, and this isn't just trophy asset stuff like the way it's been in the past. As you say, this is geopolitical. You know, they have got to diversify their economy away from, you know, carbons. They, they've made a clear statement about that for 2030. And they find themselves in the same moment in this pivotal role, kind of like playing China off against America. And we've been saying in this podcast to people, sport doesn't realise how big a game it's in just now. And I tend to fear that in the next 12 to 18 months, this fourth turning is going to hit us real hard and we just won't know where that cultural asset of sport is going to end up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the sale by Michael Jordan will probably in hindsight be looked at as pretty good timing, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the greatest, right? The goat. He, pulled, he was pulling, pulling off another one here. So, so I tend to think it's going to end badly. Uh, I just don't think it's going to end today. And again, I'm not smart enough to figure out whether that crash comes next week or next year or 10 years from now, but I think it will happen. And, and perhaps when that happens, maybe that's when, you know, local clubs will be more important again. And, you know, people start caring more about their neighbor than they do about the you know thing across the country or across the other side of the ocean. So it's, it's to me, it's just a fascinating time. I'm actually kind of in a way happy that this has happened with live and the PGA tour and, and probably not the way that most people think. And that like, I think golf's the greatest game ever. I just think it's fantastic for, for many, many reasons, but it was starting to get kind of uh, even for me, who's a big fan felt it was starting to get a little stale. And, you know, the fact that the PGA Tour just wouldn't do anything to change it. And I'm very sympathetic to Phil Mickelson in, in this thing. And I know he he used to kind of be one of the golden boys and is now has taken, uh, you know, a pretty big hit over the last year with his reputation. But, you know, the reality is, is that he, he has always been kind of a a advocate for the players as opposed to the 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 governors. You know, he did it with the Ryder Cup 10 or 15 years ago. And now he kind of took the lead with it again with, with the live tour. And as I understand it, and I probably don't have perfect information, but as I understand it, he went to the PGA tour several times, you know, asking for changes or, 
you know, let's come up with some new ideas. Let's maybe change the format a little bit. And they just didn't want to hear it. And I get it. You know, I'm a guy of a certain age now who doesn't really like change. And if I had a golden goose that was paying me millions of dollars a year and some young guy came to me and said, hey, I want you to do something different, I'd probably, I'd probably say, no, I don't want to do that either. But that's what happens when you don't have any competition. You don't have to change, right? Amen. And so Amen. I, I think the fact that Liv came in, again, we, we could spend 10 hours on the hypocrisy of the whole deal, right? But until they had the change, they they weren't willing to change. And until they were forced to do it by the market, until there was a viable alternative, they weren't going to do anything. And now they kind of have to. And, you know, it's... I don't necessarily love that it happened the way it happened, but I'm kind of glad that it did happen. And the last thing I'd say is that I know there's a lot of people out there who still are very upset about the moral part of it, allowing Saudi Arabia to come in and, you know, be now be part of a you know, huge part of the national culture or a national institution. I mean, guys, the U.S. has been intertwined with Saudi Arabia for going on 50 years now. Yep. Yep. And and if, and if you're if you're going to oppose the PGA Tour because Saudi Arabia is involved, you should probably sell your Google stock and your Oracle stock and all your other tech stocks, because all those companies are signing long term deals with MBS to develop his digital city and his technological hub in Saudi Arabia. So there's millions of sins that have been committed. Right. How do you trace it back to the original sin? I don't know. And, you know, I'm not saying to throw all morals aside, but. I mean, the reality is, is when you really dig down to the base levels, it's a mean world and bad things happen. And that's just the way the world is. Again, this goes back to, I don't necessarily like it that it's that way, but I recognize that it is. And it's probably not going, it hasn't changed for 5,000 years so far. It's probably not going to change and, and while I'm still around. Well, Brad, let's talk about the geopolitical aspects of this, because this is something that you study a lot and you're very clear headed and thoughtful about the whole thing. So let's game this out in terms of the Saudis and figure out, if you look at football, soccer, whatever you want to call it, you look at what they're doing there with Newcastle United, you look at their plans, if you believe the newspapers, that they are desperate to get a World Cup like Qatar had. We just had the World Cup in Qatar and despite promises when they were awarded it about it not being held in the winter, it would be held in the summer and the stadiums would be air-conditioned, the, the, the Qataris got what they wanted with the money. Talk a little bit about what you think the end of these means is for the Saudis. What does sport washing get them? What does owning these clubs get them? What does being associated with the PGA Tour get them, do you think? Well, I think it potentially gets them a couple of things. One, it gets them access to the movers and the shakers all over the world, right? Because again, sports is part of the culture kind of all over the world. You know, if, if you, if you own the, the, the biggest, I don't know, I don't know what the biggest cricket club in India is, but if you somehow, you know, manage to get into the biggest cricket club in India, now you get to rub shoulders and do business deals with one of the biggest growing markets in the world. Right. And if you, you know, if you're involved in the PGA tour, you know, eventually there's going to be a big sign next to the first tee box that says Saudi Aramco on it. Right. And it does help sports wash you, right? It does help, uh, I don't know, familiarize. For those of us in the U.S. who are not familiar with them, it helps us to become more familiar with them. It helps them to uh, integrate, you know, into the broader world rather than just be a Middle East, you know, local power. I think MBS is very smart. I have, To be honest, I haven't decided whether I like him yet or not. <laughs> but I think, he's, I think he's extremely smart. And I think that... For years, I think the idea has been that they're a regional power now, but when the oil's out, they're done because it's just a dry piece of earth with nothing else going for them. To his credit, I think he, I think he recognizes this. And I think he is trying to figure out a way, you know, this, I think what it's the common refrain, Dutch disease, you know, you just mm -hmm. focus on that one industry that you have and it's great while it works, but then once it's gone, you're just totally screwed. To his credit, I think he is trying to figure out a way to still be a power and to still have his citizens, right? His country still have a high quality of life when the oil eventually eventually runs out. And, you know, he's trying things. And I don't know, in some cases, they're, they're hard to believe that could ever happen, right? This hundred mile long glass city that goes through the desert. 
I mean, that's a pretty big vision. I'm not going to sit here and say it can't happen, but it seems pretty lofty to me. But he's trying, right? He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to bring technological companies there to be the hub for the Middle East because, you know, Grant, to you, you and Raul did this presentation years ago now on, on Monsoon, right? Mm-hmm. I think that is the next big growth area for the world. When you know, once we get past this this crisis or whatever, that's probably the next big growth area, and they're right in the heart of it, right? And so perhaps you know that is a long term vision. Maybe that could come true. So I think that depending on how they go about it, I I don't think that they're going to align with the BRICS. I think he's being very smart how he's playing this as well, because I think in the last year or two there's been this. I don't know, this idea that they are going to reject the United States and they're going to align with the BRICS. And then, you know, the BRICS are going to take over the world and the U.S. and Europe are going to fall. And I just disagree with that. I, I don't think that's accurate. I think he's playing both sides and I think he's playing both sides very well. You know, er- Erdogan does it better than anybody. Um, and I think MBS is <laughs> right next to him in the in the shadows so far playing them equally well. There's absolutely no reason for him not to say, yeah, I'm open to doing business with China. I'm open to selling. I mean, of course, you're. why would you ever say I'm not open to the idea, right? So I think he's doing a good job of saying he's open to the ideas. But I do not think that they are going to align officially with Russia and China against the United States. And if I'm right and they don't do that, then I think... Saudi Arabia has the has the potential to become a not just a regional power but a global power. I think if they were to align with China and Russia, I do not think it would end well for anybody. <laughs> so maybe this is me. This is maybe what I want to happen because I don't want a total complete disaster. Uh, but I, but I I don't think that that will happen. What you're alluding to there, Brent, um, when you're talking about the BRICS, which is what is it? It's such an old phrase now: Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, and and yeah. don't forget South Africa, the other powerhouse, Rog, which was the S. Oh, but, oh really? I but, didn't but, know that. But we, but yeah, originally it was, but we, they've kind of, it's now just, uh, the S is for... for, for, for well, you yeah, know what, they, I always said, if they, just, if, they, if they just took Brazil out of it, it would be a great acronym because then they could just call it RISC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, like, the game is so big here. What you're talking about, uh, and, you're, and you alluded to, to it a minute ago when you talked about the 50-year deal between America uh, and Saudi, which is the classic Pax Americana. The, the deal in basic terms, if I understand it, is that oil will be traded in dollars in exchange for America protecting Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. If that is in doubt now, and you said you don't think it will happen, but many people think it will, that, that knocks down a whole lot of dominoes that go well beyond sport, and that's why I think what they're doing in sport is such a big deal, because if they take over European soccer, uh, which is the obvious one to go for now, that kind of like pulls Europe, which includes Turkey, towards them. And, you know, it could move the whole thing very much eastward. And I tend to think that's what they're doing. I tend to think they are going to have a real goal it taking over association football, what's called soccer, and I'm slightly worried. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again, these 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 guys are not uh, small thinkers, right? I think they're thinking on very big, very grand levels. Um, and whether it's possible to pull it off or not, I'm I'm a little skeptical. But you know, a year ago, who thought that they could pull this off with Live and and the PGA Tour, right? So never say never. Um, but I think that's what they're trying to do. I think they're trying, I I, like anybody, you know, anybody who's thinks of themselves as fairly smart and they're fairly aggressive and they have high aspirations, they think big. And and I don't think they're thinking on a small scale. I think they're thinking on global scale. I think, I think they already are the regional power and I think they want to be a global power. And I think, you know, this whole sports thing is a way for them to get their hooks in, so to speak. Right. You know, but that that said, I I don't see Saudi Arabia becoming the global hegemon. I mean, I I mean, I know, again, never say never, but I, I don't I don't I don't see that as a realistic possibility. No. Yeah. They're just the banker. They're the Rothschild yeah. family of the, the next turning. Yeah, we'll see. Potentially, <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting because this, you know, the, the oil being the crux of all this, it is fascinating to me to watch the way they're going up, particularly the, the, the live thing. 
Fair enough. Uh, to me, and, and, and I'm not sure what you think, Brent, obviously there's been a lot happening in the last couple of weeks, but it, it seems to me as if all they really wanted, to your point, was that Saudi Aramco banner on the first tee. Live was a way to shake things up. Now they've they've all said, look, none of us win if we go to discovery, so why don't we just cease all hostilities, cease disclosure, cease discovery, and do it a deal, which... Yeah. essentially means that Saudi Arabia is the preferred partner in the golf world. And to be honest, we expect that Liv will just quietly go away and they'll come up with something else. And I, I, I don't think Liv was, it was just a stalking horse all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and if that's the case, you have to take your hat off to them. You know, the way they've played it is absolutely brilliant. And yes, they've thrown a billion dollars at them. And to us in the West, that seems like a lot of money to throw at golf. But you and I know full well you know, yeah. fine, turn the taps on for an extra couple of hours tomorrow and we'll get that billion dollars back in a hurry. Right. But soccer's different. You know, soccer is known as the world game. It's not played by people of better means like golf is. It's not a C-suite game. It's the game of the people. It's the game of the poorest people in South America, in Southern Europe, of working class men and women all over the world. And this isn't a West East thing. This is absolutely a global game. And so to see them doing what they're doing, throwing this kind of money to try and buy soccer, that's where I think potentially this thing may come undone or more worryingly, and, and Roger, I want you to talk about this in a minute because you know, you've been the guy who's been right on this. You say, look, this is just leave your credit card behind the bar. I'm more worried, to be honest, that they pull this off and they somehow throw so much money at soccer that it doesn't become the people's game anymore. They do buy the most participated in, and I'm sorry if you're a fisherman out there, I know, I know, I know the numbers, but no one really cares about fishing, I'm afraid, except if you've got a rod in your hand. I really fear that they pull this off. I really feel that they buy soccer somehow. And that worries me far more than them being behind the first tee on, you know, on a dozen PGA Tour events. Why? Maybe, maybe I don't understand. Why does the, How does Saudi Arabia owning, let's say they own the whole league, how does that keep a poor kid in Brazil from playing soccer? Like, how does that take it away from them? Well, this is, and this is why I want Royce to come in, because if it really is all about money, then it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. But they're not going to buy every club. They're going to basically buy two or three big clubs in every league or they're going to start the Super League. And if they do that, let's say you get a major Saudi-funded team in every major pro league in Europe and they say, right, we're pulling all our guys out. It's a much easier deal to do if you own all the clubs. The Super League yeah. happens. Once they get a quorum, then the Manchester United, the Liverpools, whoever owns them, either sells to the Saudis or goes with them. And, you know, Rogers spoken about this at length, you know, the football pyramid, once that happens, this thing ripples through all the smaller clubs that don't have the money and there will be hundreds of teams that go out of business all yeah. over the all over the, the football playing world. And quite apart from what that does to the whole point of this conversation from a, from a societal level, it does rupture an incredibly important part of the fabric of society. And it sounds ridiculous talking about football like this, but it just isn't, it's you true. know. And, and I think if you it's grow true. up in Europe, yeah. you understand that. So yeah, Roger, I think, I think, I, Gran, I think Gran, that's right, you know, and, and we've got you at a little bit of a disadvantage here, Brent, because soccer isn't really a North American's thing. You know, like you have got uh, professional leagues that are closed leagues, that are set out from day one to be run as a business. They've got salary caps. They give a return on marginality and profits to the owners. And that's the culture there. In Europe and, and South America, football, we're talking about soccer here, uh, is much more than that. You know, it's it started, as, as Grant said, as a social asset. And it had one clear characteristic that has uh, defined it for 150 years total fluidity going up and down depending on merit, which means that if you rip out the top, you kind of like have dealt it a, a mortal wound because it's not set up like American sports to just deal with the top. 
your sports system is very unique. You've got pro, you've got college, and then you've got recreational. We don't. We have got a, something that really merges into each other. And, and, you know, coming back to, right, to what you said at the start about fans now following superstars, if the superstars are owned uh, in various forms by, let's just say, Arabia, that's going to hurt the, the popularity and the fostering of the game. You can still have, you know, guys in Africa with, with a ball kicking it around or the same in Naples or in Glasgow. But their idea that they're doing that so that maybe they get good enough and they just progress and they'll ultimately play, you know, it's gone. So, you know, I think Grant's right. I, I think the idea that they are just going to buy up everything, which will include clubs like Newcastle, which will include leagues in one shape or another, either directly or through funding private equity that does that, or setting up their own, own league, which is called today the, the Saudi Professional League, and just bringing on all these players. Uh, you know, I was speaking to AC Milan today because obviously a few people reached out after the articles I did the last couple of weeks. And they said to me, they said, there's this mediocre player from Wolverhampton Wanderers that's going Neves. to uh, Saudi, Neves, going to Saudi for 50 million. Now, that's a lot of money for most clubs, certainly all clubs outside the English Premiership. This has totally distorted the market for talent, which is your market for, if you were in the tech industry, your market for developers, your market, I mean, it's totally distorted it. And Grant's saying, we fear this isn't going to stop now. And they don't care about what they leave behind. Well, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that, truth in that, right? I mean, they're, you know, you could call them the robber, the modern day robber barons, right? They're coming in, they're, they're focused on themselves. They're not, they're not focused on those left behind. I definitely see the downside in it. And I think there will probably be some downsides in it. And I think it could all, like, like again, I, I hate, keep, I hate to keep bringing up the fourth turning in all my conversations, but it, no, it, it, that's it where they all, you, that's where they all inevitably to. lead. They all inevitably lead there. And you know, I, I don't think the fourth turning is good for anybody, right? It, that is, it, it, it's, it's just a big upheaval. And I think that this train that's heading in that way is going to continue. I think there's going to be a big crash, but I think that's where it's headed. And, you know, whether the, the, the sports world suffers as bad as other parts of the industry or not, I, other, other industries, I, I don't know. It, it, but to, to me, I, I don't see how to stop it. The only way to stop it at this point, in my opinion, is if governments now come in and say, hey, in order to be a majority-owned investor in one of our national leagues, we have to approve it. Again, we're back to the central bankers involved in the markets, right? But that wouldn't surprise me if something like that starts to happen. I did think it was kind of interesting that now after this live and you know PGA Tour deal was announced or potential deal was announced, now the senators have come out and said, oh, well, we need to know what's going on here. <laughs> right. when, yeah, you know, which when apparently they didn't want to have anything to do with it you know, over the last year when when Monaghan went to them for help. So, you know, again, that's pretty typical too, right? Now now that they can get some headlines out of it, they want to come in and, you know, throw their weight around. But, you know, I, I just feel like this is a this is a movement that, that's heading in that direction. I, I don't necessarily think it's going to end well, but I don't think it's turning around and going the other way anytime soon. Well, Brent, you know, I'm not sure 100% agree with you on the analogy of central bankers. I would say the analogy is more close to a regulated industry like a monopoly, like the rail industry or telecoms or water, where that's got nothing to do with central bankers, but it's got everything to do with antitrust and regulation and making sure you can't make super profits through. through. And I tend to think that's likely where it's going to go. You know, they're going to say it's just like the water industry. But, you know, the, the, the central bank uh, idea and that you can manip manipulate prices and it's very cool that I, I'm just not sure that it's exactly right for, you know, for this industry that, that we're, we're dealing with. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not the right way to say it. I just I just know that whenever whenever governments or regulators get involved, they can hold the water back for a while, but eventually the market yeah, you're wins. Right. You're, you're right, Brent. You're right. But let's talk yeah. about that one last question. We've taken up a lot of your time. Sure. One last question. You and I both have done the interviews with Grant Williams on his own media. Uh, you yourself have got your own form of media. And, you know, I, I think what we've seen in the last 10 years, certainly maybe 20, 
is this classic polarization in the media sector as well, where the incumbents that have, let's say, gone very flat in trying to be all things to all men and women are having their lunch eaten by people who do niche, whether that's dumbing down niche like Barstool or whether it's what you and Grant do. And my question is, since the media sector finances sport through its bids for broadcast rights, What's your view on where the media sector is now? And you look around and you could be talk about CNBC, you can talk about financial media or more generally. Do you see that also in a fourth turning? Yeah, you know, it probably is. Um, yeah, I, I'm not I'm the first to, to to admit that this is not my area of expertise and I'm not I'm not a media expert. I'm, I'm not a I, I love sports from a sports person's point of view. Uh, I, I don't even I don't claim to be a sports business expert like, like you are. But I do think that it's going to be really interesting to see how all these streaming services play into it, right? And whether streaming services buy up the rights for certain things and whether there will still have to be the same, you know, bidding wars that there used to be or whether, you know, there's so many self-publishers now, right? Where the, you know, the, it used to be that you would potentially only go to three different, three or four different places if you wanted to watch sports or, or if you wanted to get the news on the sports and now there's a million different places you can go to get news on sports or or whatever that particular yeah. particular topic is. Um, so I, I think that, you know, the, the legacy industries and the legacy channels are going to continue to be disintermediated or whatever the right way to say that is. My guess is that the legacy media will continue to pay astronomical dollars in the hopes that they will be the one winner. But to your point, the cost of capital is no longer zero. And so we will probably be see some fantastically bad deals get made. Yeah, amen to that. Listen, Brent, um, <clears throat> before we close, you know, the one thing about sport is it's always been such a unifying thing, as you say, right? It's such a part of the culture and it does, at the same time, it tears people apart from red team to blue team. It pulls people together into this, this love of a game. And so I want you to finish and just tell a story that you told me in the spirit of bringing people together about your trip to Russia as a school kid because that was... that is everything that sport can do to, to bring people together. And, and, and what better way to finish than to hear that story, given what's going on in the world right now? Okay, yeah. So I went to Kansas for two years. And after two years at Kansas, I transferred to a small school in Kansas City called Rockhurst, which was a D2 a Jesuit school. And uh, it was a very good, very good school in, in the Midwest. And, you know, I did well there both from a basketball perspective and uh, from academic perspective, that's when I kind of started to focus on the academics a little bit more than I had previously. And, and I, I got selected to go on this educational exchange trip to Russia. Um, it was a group of teachers from my college and a group of teachers from Wichita, high school teachers from Wichita and college professors from Kansas City were going to go on this exchange trip to Russia. And we went, we went to three places. We, we flew into Moscow, we were there for two or three days. And on our way out, we went to St. Petersburg. We were there for two or three days. But in between, we went to this town up on the uh, White Sea slash Arctic Ocean called Severodvinsk. Most people have probably never heard of this place because for years, decades, it was a closed city. Stalin had had it built, you know, 50 or 60 years prior as a place to build their nuclear submarines. And... Americans had not been allowed in there until we were the first, I think a couple of Americans had been in there, but we were the first group to go in there. And so we were treated like absolute rock stars. And the part of the reason I was chosen was because they knew I played basketball and they wanted me to go play basketball with the army base that was located there and with the, uh, right. some of the high school teams or whatever. And so it was just an incredible experience because we we lived with individual families. They didn't put us up in a hotel. I don't even know if they had hotels. Nobody <laughs> could come in or go out. So there's no reason for a hotel. Um, but they put us up with individual families. So I, I don't speak any Russian at all. And I'm staying with this Russian family who's got three little kids, maybe 10, eight and six is how old they were. Uh, but the husband was an engineer at the nuclear submarine factory. And so... He was very interested in talking to me and I was very interested in talking to him, but we couldn't really talk to each other. So, you know, the kids are sitting there and the wife is sitting there and they're, they're kind of translating pidgin English for us. And we're, we're literally drawing pictures on little scraps of paper to try to get our point across, you know, almost like Pictionary. 
And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's explains to me that he works at the nuclear submarine factory. And I think I probably said something about red October, you know, the red October was the, and he, oh, he, uh, you know, he, oh, of course. Um, and so he says, hold on a second. Or he, he makes you hold up hold on. and he goes and he comes back and he hands me this pin. He has this pin. And it's a, what a pin, like what you would put on your lapel of your shirt or your jacket. Right, yeah, right. And it's a pin. It's a shark. And the shark is holding a trident spear, you know, a spear with three prongs on it in his mouth. And the, the, the spear is kind of bent and broken. And he says, do you understand? Do you understand? I said, no, I don't understand. I mean, I understood it was a pin, but I didn't. He, said, he says, Akula, Akula, Akula. And I knew Akula's was the name of their submarines. And so Akula, they're the shark. shark. Akula means shark in Russian. So then I realized, oh, and then I figured it out. It's like, so the U.S. submarines are called Tridents. The Russian submarines are called Akulas. And so he was showing me this young punk from America about the Red October didn't really go down that way. You know, the, the Akulas were eating the Tridents. And so we, we both got it. I started laughing and he started laughing. We had a good laugh about that. Um, but that, that was kind of my that, that that's an example of how basketball took me on the other side of the world in a place I had never thought I would be. You know, again, I grew up in the, a kid, a, an American kid in the 80s grows up thinking that Russia is the worst place in the world. And it's a bunch of evil communists who want to blow us up, you know. And so five years later, I'm, I'm literally on a top you know, secret submarine base. And not only am I there, but I like the guy I'm talking to and we're laughing together. Right. And so that it was such an incredible when I look back on it and I think about it, it's like, how the hell did that really happen? Like, that's just one of those incredible things that you couldn't I, you couldn't script that any better. Um, but it happened and it's, it's real. And it's, it just shows you that, you know, people aren't that different no matter where they're at. And, Absolutely, you know, yeah. if you, if you m- most people, if you put them down at a table and you share a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, you can probably find some common ground. Yeah, look, and, and a lot of that common ground is going to be sport, right? That's just just yeah, right. the facts, right? It's going to be basketball, it's going to be soccer, it's going to be golf, it's going to be something. Mate, listen, it's always such a pleasure. I love talking to you. Yeah. I wish we could talk more. But listen, there are people listening to this show who, amazingly, you probably don't follow you on Twitter because I think you've got everybody on Twitter following you, but just let people know how how they can follow you because, you know, as I said, and, I, and I'll do the plug for Brent because Brent is one of the most thoughtful people on twitter but he's also one of the most amusing sardonic sarcastic whatever you want he's a one-stop shop i promise you so tell him about that and also your pod with john because it's um again it's great listening yeah so we have a we have a podcast it's funny we call it a show because we don't like the word podcast but we have a show that we do every week um if you go to milkshakespod.com there's a lot of information there uh you can look it up on youtube it's called milkshakes markets and madness where we just kind of discuss markets uh, the world of sport and just anything kind of going on in politics or the world that we think is kind of crazy or interesting i'm very active on twitter santiago au fund is my handle but uh, if you just type in santiago capital and look for a white seashell that'll be me i'm occasionally a little sarcastic but uh it's all it's it's never mean spirited. So uh, never were you more sarcastic than when you just said occasionally. Yes, jeez. <laughs> you know that's again that that is the byproduct of being my dad's son. He loved to argue. He was very sarcastic, and you know, and that's that's just the way that's the environment I grew up in. It was never mean spirited, but it was always there. Fantastic. Well, mate, listen, a, a belated happy Father's Day to you. And um, I hope we see each other in the flesh soon. Like I said, anytime you want to come up, two shots aside, come see me in Kiwa. We'll do it. All right, buddy. Thank you care. so much, Brent. A real, a real thrill. Thank you. Thanks, guys. There we go. I love talking to Brent. You know, he's, uh, he's so much fun. You know, he's, he, he's brilliant at what he does, but he's just such a great observer of the world and people and tides like you, Rog, you know, you, you and Brent, a kindred spirits in my book. You know, you both kind of look at the way the world is traveling and you have this ability to, as he said, you know, see two worlds, the one that you you would like the world to be and the one that it is. And that's, you know, it's it's not that easy to do. I, you know, I see them both. I just refuse to, to acknowledge one of them, that's all. Um, but you and Brent have a much better ability to do that than me. So, um, you know, I really enjoyed that and I hope, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, no, I, I did. You know, like we we had a, a Twitter exchange around the PGA Live announcement, and and uh, I said, look, why don't you come on? Because the kind of things he was throwing at me were just so clever, and as you say, cutting and sarcastic. And I thought, yeah, 
Why don't you come on? And of course, it plays into his big theme, which is investing capital in a world that's going through a fourth turning and going through massive geopolitical change. You know, he referred to their, you know, the milkshake theory, which, you know, is really not for our podcast, but it is all about, you know, the US dollar may be weak, but it'll be the last man standing. And in the meantime, it's going to suck everybody else's milkshake. And that has got dramatic implications for currencies. Brent is certainly a guy you want to follow if you've got capital invested or if you're thinking that you need to protect your asset base. Amen. Amen indeed. All right. Well, listen, um, our thanks to our guest, Brent Johnson. It's always fun to talk to him. Our thanks to you, of course, for listening. We appreciate you doing that every time we put one of these out. If you don't follow us already on Twitter, that's very easy to remedy. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You can find me at TTMYGH. And myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Mate, until next time. Thank you, Grant. Take care. Stay safe.